This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello there. How's it going? Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or advance their career in ag tech or agribusiness, I'd love to talk to them. Send me an email, tim at aggrad.com. Well, as you know, I've been on a bit of an investor kick here lately, and I have had a few of you ask, like, what's the deal? Like, are you, you know, what are you doing with all the investors? Why is that such a point of interest? And um, as I've said in previous episodes, I think it's really important to understand the thinking behind where the money comes from that funds projects and funds companies and funds initiatives and funds innovations uh, in agriculture, because if you follow the money, you will understand the motivations and be able to understand a lot of the initiatives related to ag innovation. So I think it's it's uh, extremely interesting. I hope you're finding it interesting as well to talk to investors and understand what they are looking at uh, and how they are getting the returns and the impact they want to have out of their dollars. We're going to explore a really, really interesting aspect of investment today, one I had never heard of before, but one I could see as very relevant to agriculture and the future of agriculture. Uh, We have on the show Aaron Ratner, and Aaron is Managing Director and Head of Origination for Ultra Capital. Ultra Capital, and I'm reading here, is accelerating the flow of institutional capital to finance small and mid-sized sustainable real asset projects in agriculture, energy, water, and waste. They target consistent, attractive investment performance by leveraging technology and process innovation to manage outcomes and risk. Okay, so what does that mean? Uh, They invest on the project level. So if there is the opportunity um, to solve some sort of problem related to ag, energy, water, and waste, they will invest only at the project level, which means they don't take any equity in the company itself. Uh, it's almost kind of like a joint venture. They they get their money back based on the cash flows that the project will produce. So we talk about everything from why is this not a private equity investment to why don't they just go get a loan from a bank and what types of projects fit this mold. Very, very interesting stuff. I think you'll enjoy it. Here is my interview with Aaron Ratner, and he's going to start off by telling us a little bit more about what does project level equity even mean. Our capital is project level equity capital. So we don't take any options or warrants. We don't invest in the developer, which means we don't have any ownership over their company or the way they want to run their business. We invest purely at the project level and we, we bring a lot of expertise to that space. And there are parameters within which the developer needs to bring their project in order for us to invest. Those are the conditions that we discussed earlier, but it's project level equity capital. And we always tell developers it's, it's partnership capital. So it's not debt, it's non-recourse, it's no fixed payments. But at the same time, we're not actually taking a board seat and telling them how to, to run their business day to day. It's really right at the project level. And our aspiration is to finance a project with a developer, then finance a few more. And by that point, hopefully they've got enough cash flow coming to them from those projects and the banks have come around and gotten to understand the projects better that they can self-fund. So one key success for Ultra Capital 
is backing a developer through so many projects that they no longer need our money. Mm. And a lot of people think that that's fatalistic or that's a, a negative outcome for us, but that's a graduating from that program here in Ultra Capital is one of our main objectives that, that we're thinking about every day when we're backing these developers. Okay. And, and can you walk us through maybe one specific example so we can get an idea of how it works? Sure. So uh, I'll give you an example of one of the projects in our first fund, which we uh, finished investing out of last year. We have a, a project up in North Dakota that is taking roughly 500,000 tons a year of post-harvest and post-production agriculture waste. So that means uh, biomass that's left in the field after harvest and uh, organic waste that is a byproduct of food production uh, and converting that waste stream into ethanol. And so whereas we would struggle to finance a purpose-grown corn ethanol plant, we are able to put up $80 million to fund a project that takes a waste stream and produces a valuable product, product out of it. So in this case, we, we met a developer who had been working on the project for a few years. They had identified um, a significant amount of, of biomass that was effectively being laid out in fields or just left to turn into methane in the open air. They secured the waste stream and then came to us to try to build a project around it. And they had found uh, reference facilities in Europe that were using the same waste stream to uh, produce ethanol and actually vodka. So there was an existing facility up and running that was working. So we were able to go and diligence that. We were also able to sign long-term contracts for the waste streams with the, the co-ops and the big farmers who were producing those products. Uh, and on the other side, we were able to secure a long-term contract for the, uh, the offtake, which was in this case was ethanol. And around that, we worked with an engineering firm to come up with a project cost that uh, would allow everyone to hit the kind of returns we needed to achieve on the project. And after about 18 months of working with that developer, we broke ground last summer. And you know, we're hopeful that that project will be up and running by the end of 2019. In a project like that, for example, well, why did you choose that project to invest $80 million in it instead of deploying that capital elsewhere? What was it that was really of interest there? Well, I think for one, um, you know, the scale. So if you, if you look at the agriculture sector right now, it's one of the largest industries on the planet. It's absolutely critical to the daily survival of humanity. And here in the United States, there are a lot of legacy inefficiencies embedded in the agriculture system. So when we look at the agriculture sector, we try to find large scale problems that where a solution is inevitable because the system is unsustainable. And in this case, we are up in the Red River Valley where there are millions of tons of potatoes and sugar beets produced every year. Uh, and a significant byproduct of that being the, the tailings from all of the, the harvesting and no one was doing anything with the waste stream. And so there was a, a developer came to us who had identified and secured, as I said, you know, half a million tons a year of, of uh, biomass waste that we effectively are able to secure at a very low cost because it otherwise had no value to the producer of that waste stream. And in a project like that, what, what's your exit plan? Right. So, you know, we, we are targeting long-term stable contracted cash flows for our projects and on behalf of our investors. And so in, a, in, in all of our projects, the long-term plan is to be an owner and operator of that project for as long as the project exists, which could be 10, 20, or 30 years. So that we don't have uh, an artificial horizon in which we need to 
sell the project in order to go and invest more capital. In fact, a lot of our investors are seeking longer-term deployment of capital at a, at a stable cash flow return. And that, that ends up being very meaningful to developers as well because you know, these projects take several years to put together and developers put a lot of you know, sweat equity and time into getting them put together. And they also want to know that we're going to be there for the long term and that we're not going to come in and flip them as soon as they're up and running. Aaron, I know you said typically the reasons that these developers uh, look to you for funding is because they, they can't or they won't get money from banks. And I'm just curious, what, why won't banks loan to these types of projects? In the sustainable infrastructure sector, what traditionally has been defined by solar, wind, and hydro, uh, you know, projects in which, in which the developer can get long-term, you know, 20-year fixed-price contracts for the service. So they're very dependent, typically with a credible utility. So they're, they're easy to underwrite for a lender. In a lot of the projects that, that we look at at Ultra Capital, where we're a little bit farther along the, uh, out on the development curve, we're looking at um, projects like anaerobic digestion of food waste or renewable natural gas projects. Um, the feedstock, the input and output contracts are often very difficult to contract up at fixed prices for long term. And that that can cause banks to pull back a little bit on their ability to fully credit those uh, what otherwise look like predictable cash flow streams. So I'll give you two examples in food waste anaerobic digestion. So in, in a standard project that takes 100,000 tons a year of food waste and turns it into gas on site and then combusts it in a, in a turbine and sends, sells it into um, a, a long-term electricity PPA, that food waste is very difficult to get contracted up on guaranteed volume delivery over the long term. You can sign a contract with a major hauler to bring you waste if they have it, but none of those haulers, none of the big brand names are going to guarantee delivery of it. So if you bring that project to a lender, they're going to point out the fact that you don't actually have a contract for guaranteed supply, and they're typically going to haircut the value of that input stream to the point where the debt becomes a lot more expensive than it would be otherwise. Another example would be the renewable natural gas sector. You know, take for example what's happening right now in California with the conversion of dairy manure into renewable natural gas. The, the you know regular natural gas sells for a few dollars in MMBTU. In California, if you're selling renewable natural gas that is uh, created using dairy manure, you can sell it for over fifty dollars in MMBTU. So it's a massive premium. Uh, and that's all due to the, the LCFS credits that are available to those projects. So if you're a developer and you have a project in the renewable natural gas space and you're converting, say, dairy manure in the state of California into RNG, and you take that project to a bank, they're going to ask you for long-term feedstock contracts and long-term offtake contracts. The feedstock contracts are going to be fairly easy to obtain because the dairy is right there and the manure is easy to create and capture. On the offtake side, if you go to a big buyer of RNG and you tell them that you need a 15-year fixed-price contract in order to borrow money from a bank, they're going to give it to you, but they're going to give it to you for 10 or 20% of the current value of that gas. And so if a developer goes to a traditional bank and says, we need capital for a project, the bank forces the function of securing an offtake contract. The buyers know that, and so they're able to obtain a huge haircut. And typically, if you take that project to another a private equity firm 
or another project finance investment firm, most of the investors in this space just require that fixed price contract because people just don't have visibility on what those prices are going to be five, 10 years out. So it becomes very difficult to borrow money for, from banks for these projects uh, in a way that makes the projects financeable. So really the gap is there to be filled by project finance firms that can step in and take a little bit of a longer view and understand what the, the business reality is of the next few years versus what's actually able to be contracted with the big buyers. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. And, and how'd you get into this? I mean, have you always been passionate about, you know, energy and water and waste and agriculture or how did you end up where you are? So I actually, I started and spent most of my career in emerging markets. I spent about eight years in Asia, did some work in Latin America and was for the most part, just on the investment side, trying to make money out of doing deals which was a lot of fun and exciting, but um, was was never as fulfilling as I wanted it to be. And after I got out of graduate school, I uh, got involved with a business called Emerging Energy that I ended up running that was trying to b- bring mobile power solutions to third world countries. And so we were running around Bangladesh and Nigeria and Ecuador, trying to develop these projects where we were bringing electricity to some of the poorest people in the world. And it was very, very challenging work. There's a lot of economy class flights. We self-funded the business, so we were traveling on a, a dime. Uh, and it was ultimately really challenging to get any projects done. But at the same time, it was incredibly fulfilling trying to make the world a better place. And from that, there was really no turning back. So I, I uh, after a few years of trying to get that business off the ground, we put it on pause and I went and, and helped start an impact investment bank called I2 Capital Group, which was founded by a woman named Ashley Allen out of Washington, D.C., who was very early on the scene in the impact investment space. Uh, and we did some very interesting advisory work around large landscape scale conservation projects in the U.S., which was uh, fantastic. But um, my DNA was more on the, the buy side. So I left that and went back to developing projects and eventually joined Ultra Capital, where I stepped in to support the origination function and, and run it today. And for Ultra Capital, has energy, water, waste, and agriculture, has that always been the focus or has that kind of uh, evolved over time? That's the whole thing we do. The, the original founders of the business had a vision for this form of capital, this project level equity capital, uh, accelerating the deployment of private funding into solving some of the world's biggest problems. And on the tail end of sort of clean tech 1.0 not being as successful as possible, mostly because venture wasn't the right form of capital for a lot of these businesses. It was determined that project level equity was really the right uh, scale. Or let me, say, let me take it back. We, we figured out that project level equity was the right form of capital to deploy what we expect to be billions of dollars a year into the market over time. Okay. And, and I read a PDF that you shared with me uh, that Ultra Capital wrote called the Emerging Investment Opportunity in Fundamental Resource Sectors. And the, the tagline of it I thought was interesting. It said, capitalizing on the shift to distributed infrastructure. Um, can, can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by distributed infrastructure? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we think that the days of large monolithic projects, whether they're power production or waste processing 
are really coming to an end. The efficiencies that are being created by localized processing of waste, uh, localized food production or fertilizer production or feed production, localized wastewater treatment, storage of electricity, uh, all those efficiencies are, are now more technologically feasible. And so the, from an economic return perspective, it's starting to make a lot more sense to finance uh, distributed projects rather than investing significant amounts of capital in large uh, infrastructure projects that take multiple years to develop and, and build. That's cool. That, that makes a lot of sense. So it, I would imagine, though, at some, it, there's got to be uh, sort of a, a minimum size to it. I mean, you're not going to help some guy put up another you know, uh, barn in his dairy operation, I would imagine. Uh, what, um, you know, what would be like the, the minimum size that it would need to be and, and what criteria would it need to meet to, uh, in order for somebody that really should reach out to you? Sure, sure. Yeah, so, the, so, you know, our average project size right now is about $35 million. And we are working with developers who have $5 million size projects. We're also working on a few projects that are about $150 million in size. But the average is about $35, $40 million. Uh, and those projects end up taking, you know, roughly nine to 18 months from breaking ground to full-scale operations. So we try to limit the size of the project from a capital perspective, but also from a construction timeline perspective, just to make sure that we uh, keep track of the, the sort of risk exposure that comes in, in whenever you try to finance these large projects. And that, that kind of size, that sort of $35 million size, whether it's 100,000 tons a year of food waste into an anaerobic digester or a landfill gas capture project that takes roughly 12 months to build and ramp up, that seems to be uh, a size where the construction risks are fairly limited and where we think we can execute with a really high degree of accuracy around the, the project budget and timeline. And, you know, as far as what we look for in a project, there really are six key criteria for us when we evaluate any project in, in our space. The first and the most important one is the people. So who is the developer? Do they know what they're doing? Have they done this before? Have they closed deals before? Have they invested in the project so far? Do they have real skin in the game? And do they know how to get, get these projects done? That, that's a, that's um, you know, the, the starting point because these projects are difficult. They take a long time to develop. Uh, we average uh, signing a term sheet about 12 to 18 months in advance of breaking ground on the project. So there's a long time it takes even once we get involved before the project's ready to finance. So good people make or break any project. The second criteria is siting and permits. This is sort of the binary form of risk on, on these projects where you've got to make sure that you're going to be able to get all the permits you need, uh, either through a regulatory process or a procedural process to operate the facility. And, you know, needless to say, you, you can't break ground on these projects until you have all those permits in place. Mm -hmm. uh, the third criteria is really feedstock. So in, <clears throat> in any of these projects, there's a, a, an input stream. It could be a waste stream or it could be a, uh, a gas stream, an energy stream, um, but you have to secure the input stream over the long term of the project. So if it's a landfill gas project, you got to get the gas rights. It's, if, if it's a dairy manure project, you need 10 or 20 years of uh, rights to the dairy manure. So you have to have the feedstock secured. And that creates complexities because oftentimes, because this industry is moving so quickly, the developer has approached someone who has a waste stream. And often that waste stream is a real problem for them, particularly in you know, something like landfill uh, methane emissions or livestock manure, 
But the second you say to them that you want to secure it for 20 years, they think it's worth something. And so there's an inevitable dialogue around how you price that kind of a waste stream that you're going to turn from a, a liability for somebody into a potential profit center. And we can actually talk about one thing I want to talk to you about on this call is sort of the shift from sustainability to circular economy and cost center to profit center. But we can, we can get back to that in a bit. Mm -hmm. um, the fourth thing that's key for all these projects is, is offtake. And so, you know, we're in general in project finance, we're unable to fund these projects and hope to sell whatever's coming out of them on a merchant basis. You know, project finance is sort of founded on, 20-year service contracts or 20-year PPAs, and we don't always need that in place. Uh, but we do need to know with a reasonable amount of clarity that we're going to be able to sell or offload whatever we're producing at a price that is uh, reasonably predictable. And in our case, one of the things we also do is we, we always make sure that we are a low-cost provider in the market. So even if that off-day contract goes away because the counterparty on the other end terminates it or goes bankrupt or something happens, that we're still able to compete in the market just based on the cost of production of whatever we're producing. The, the fifth thing is uh, the engineering and the, the sort of EPC agreement. Uh, we are, because we're purely at the project level, we're not set up to take any technology risk. So what we can't do is fund a first-time commercial scale facility of anything. That's, that's equity risk. And so we need to have an ability to see a reference facility. There needs to be an engineering firm that's done it before so that there really isn't any risk around uh, mass balance, around how the facility is going to perform, and, and just as importantly, around the total project cost. We, we want to make sure in all cases that the engineering firm knows what they're doing when they give us a price quote so the, price, the cost of the project doesn't change halfway through. Uh, and the last criteria is really around operations of the facility. So we aspire to be a very hands-off investor. We, going back to the first criteria around working with quality developers, we really only back people who know what they're doing. And that means that we work with operators who have experience in these sectors and have the ability to really understand and stay ahead of all of the myriad of uh, things that come up when you're operating a, a large uh, physical facility like this. Yeah, you, uh, the the term developer it seems like it could mean a lot of different things. Um, for for you, you know what what what's a developer look like? So you know you can use maybe this dairy example or the example up in the Red River Valley that you mentioned earlier. You know who is this developer person? It, you know it's not the same as like a developer that would develop like a uh, apartment complex. Um, what do you mean by developer? So in our in our space, developers are very entrepreneurial, very courageous teams of individuals. It is, it's never the case that it's just one person who have come together and decided that they're going to try and build a profitable business, making the world a better place. And they've gone out and typically secured a little bit of capital to cover their time and energy as they go and spec out the project. But they've identified, generally what happens is they've identified uh, an opportunity around which you can build a project. So whether it's a half a million tons a year of a particular form of waste stream, or it's a livestock manure issue in a particular geography where there's nowhere more room to dispose of that manure, or it's a wastewater opportunity with a large beverage manufacturer in a municipality that is charging that beverage manufacturer increasingly high rates for wastewater disposal into the system. So there, there's a, a some opportunity around which this entrepreneurial team has 
secured the rights to a stream and are there, therefore are upon that are, are going out and building a project around that. So they, they take that project, they think about the economics, they bring in an engineering firm to give them a rough sense of what the project may cost. And once it is loosely baked, they bring it to us, to Ultra Capital and to other uh, potential investors to get a sense of what the cost of capital is going to be and make sure that there's a project there that actually makes sense for the, the capital that's available to finance the project. Developers in our sector are all uh, incredible optimists. So it, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of optimism to get out of bed every day trying to profitably solve the, the big challenges of the world in ways that uh, haven't been done before. What, what about the operators? Uh, typically, when you enter a project, do you already know who the, the operator of that project is ultimately going to be? Yeah, we have relationships with uh, several large national firms who operate up to multi-billion dollar projects. And so we've bring them in early on to help us take a look at these projects and understand what the actual operating costs are going to be so that we're not only structuring the project correctly, but we've got them lined up and signing off on whatever the the plan is post-construction. And that really frees up our developer partners to go and do what they do best, which is going and finding more opportunities. Cool. Um, Now, as you're as you continue to grow, you mentioned kind of having your first fund um, uh, that you that you already raised. Are you still looking to looking for new investments and deploy new capital, or are you kind of in the phase where you're just um, working on projects and then um, kind of you know operating the projects you've already invested in? We're always raising capital. We we uh, expect to be investing out of our second fund towards the end of this quarter, first quarter of 2019. Uh, but over the, you know, as I said earlier, we're we're trying to build a firm here that's going to outlive all of us. So we're hoping to get to a point where we are deploying billions of dollars a year into sustainable infrastructure projects, not only in the U.S. and Canada, which are the geographies we cover right now, but also globally. So we're very active in the market right now. Uh, for our second fund, we've got some very interesting livestock manure projects. We've got a couple of uh, agriculture waste projects where we found developers who are converting large agriculture waste streams into marketable product, whether that's animal feed or pulp or food ingredients. Uh, we've got some really neat um, just basic food waste anaerobic digestion projects we're working on. We've got a lot of opportunity coming at us. Great. Well, Aaron Ratner, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been fun. My pleasure, man. Thanks so much. It's really, uh, really great work. Thank you again to Aaron for being on the show. I can definitely see where this type of financing could come in handy, uh, where you can project some reasonable cash flows from a big upfront investment um, that solves a problem, like he said, related to maybe waste, or maybe it's a value-added agriculture opportunity, a big farmer looking to scale up and get into food processing or something like that. I I could see where this could be. of, of relevance. So hope you can too. would love to hear your thoughts. I'm at Tim Hamrich on Twitter. Thanks so much for your time and your attention today and for your interest in making the world a better place through ag innovation. We'll be back next week. Hope you'll join us. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. 
Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week.